Anna Farger is the author of The Umbrella Mouse, her debut children's novel published in 2019. The story is an animal adventure set in 1944 against the backdrop of the D-Day landings. The book secured the coveted Waterstones Children's Book of the Month slot and won the Sainsbury's Book Prize for Fiction in 2019. Incredibly, Anna wrote the novel on the notepad on her iPhone while commuting to work. The sequel, Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue, is published in 2020 and we'll be talking about it today. This time, the narrative is driven by the lead up to the liberation of Paris in 1944. Welcome to In the Reading Corner, Anna. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks for having me. So I was completely uh, fascinated to hear that you uh, wrote The Umbrella Mouse on your iPhone while travelling to work. <laughs> and I've got a three-part question really to uh, kick us off. Uh, first of all, what work were you travelling to and are you still doing that work? <laughs> and did you write the second novel in the same way? <laughs> yeah, it started off, I was having terrible panic attacks on the tube and I used to find it such a measurable place. So I first kind of wrote the very the first very basic notes. I was working um, in PR for a company that looked after art galleries and artists in London. And then I actually became quite unwell with a, a fibromyalgia and um, I took a bit of time off that job and I ended up training to cook. I thought it would be a good thing to sort of, you know, do for my time and do some cooking. So I was traveling to my cookery school as well when I really got into the writing of it on the tube. So I stopped started for, you know, some time, but I finished it in 2013. And, um, and then um, the second book, I wrote all over the place, but on a computer this time. <laughs> but it has been written in hotel rooms, camper vans, planes, trains. <laughs> it's sort of almost anywhere but the desk sometimes, it feels like. Both books have a lot of, you know, it's a real quest tale. Um, and I was certainly felt like I was on my own quest <laughs> sometimes when I was writing it. Um, but yeah, I still, I still find my iPhone notepad, funnily enough, is a really good place to jot notes and thoughts and sometimes sentences or paragraphs. So I've re I'm, re I'm quite drawn to it now. So uh, before we start to talk uh, about the Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue, I think uh, for listeners to, in the reading corner, we should perhaps just fill them in on uh, the first book in case they haven't read it yet. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the first book is, it opens in June 1944 when London was being hit with V2 weapons. And it follows a little mouse heroine called Pip Hanway, who lives inside the real life umbrella shop, very famous, iconic umbrella shop in London called James Smith and Sons. And it wasn't in real life hit by a VT weapon, but it is at the beginning of the umbrella mouse. And this forces Pip on a perilous quest to find a new home, which happens to be in Italy, where there's one umbrella museum in the world, which really does exist in Northern Italy called Ingegnesi. And her long lost family is there. That's where her mother was from. So she's going to get from London to Italy through war-torn Europe. But the only way that she can get there is by joining Noah's Ark, who are based on a real life French resistance group that used animal code names. And Noah's Ark are going to help her get to Italy. But danger is everywhere. And when the enemy closes in, Pip must risk everything 
for her new friends. So it's a story all about friendship and courage and adventure and fighting for what you believe in and fighting for the people that you love. And it's got interweaved within it has all these real life animal heroes, the French resistance, French resistance heroes, but also the Dickin medal winning heroes who have been awarded for gallantry since 1943. So you meet our sort of first search and rescue dog and messenger pigeons and all sorts of these amazing real life animals who have helped us in wartime and saved countless lives in doing so. So it commemorates all of them and the French resistance heroes as well. Fantastic. I hope we're going to talk a little bit more about those characters uh, in a little while. Uh, but there's a wonderful quotable line um, in Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue. We are never the same after we lose the ones we love, but the dead will never die if they're not forgotten. That's a sentiment that is really at the heart of commemoration and remembrance. And I know that the Umbrella Mouse was partly inspired by family history. Can you tell us a bit about your grandfather's story? Yeah, so this amazing story. I, my mum wasn't very well when um, I was growing up and I had been given this project by my English teacher at the time and they wanted us to interview an inspirational person. And I was really struggling to concentrate because I was worried about my mum. And my dad told me this story about his father and his father was a very courageous pilot in the RAF. And in 1944, his Spitfire was shot down over Brittany. And when it crash landed, he was incredibly fortunate because he was rescued by villagers fighting with the French resistance because downed airmen would most likely have been shot. And they kept him in, a, well, they kept him in hiding for a period of time. And on the night of his escape from Nazi-occupied France, a teenage girl led him over a minefield in the pitch black on a moonless night when you could sort of barely see your hand across your face. And this teenage girl led him over this minefield laying white handkerchiefs on the ground so that he could navigate his way through this minefield without getting hurt. And he survived because of these people and, you know, ordinary men and women and children like you and me. And um, sadly, a number of them were killed shortly after his escape for helping him. And when I heard that story, aged sort of 12 or 13, I suppose, I was just my whole, all my ears just pricked. I just suddenly thought, wow, the French resistance were such a daring, gripping, amazing, you know, they were spies and they were just, but what was so incredible about them is that they were ordinary people. They weren't kind of James Bond with MI6. They were just, you you know, people like you and me. And um, so I just thought there was this opportunity to remember the French resistance in a new historical work of fiction that might encourage children, like I had been encouraged at that moment, to read more and learn more. It's an incredible story and it's uh, a, a story really about how ordinary people do extraordinary things. Yeah. Did you know your grandfather? You say your, your father told you this story. No, it's so sad. He died. He, we, we're not entirely sure what happened, but it's either that he'd choked and had a heart attack and he died in his 60s and I was only two. So I only have a, a one memory of him and that was my older brother running out to meet him at my parents' house and, and the smell of pipe smoke. And um, otherwise I didn't know him, sadly. So before we talk about 
umbrella males to the rescue. Uh, we've mentioned the French resistance. Uh, tell us a bit about Pip and other members of your Noah's Ark. You actually celebrate quite a, a, a number of the female resistance yeah. movement. Well, when I was doing my research, when I knew I was going to write this French resistance story, and I came across this, I mean, unbelievably impressive woman called Mary Madeleine Fourcard. And she was the only woman to head a significant resistance network during World War II. But she isn't that well known. And that's largely because um, Charles de Gaulle chose not to remember her when he was awarding all these resistors at the end of the war. And I read her memoir and every single page I just encountered the most incredible sacrifice and bravery and just wit and guile and just I just couldn't stop thinking about her and when I found out that she had assigned her network of spies animal code names she had about 3,000 members of members um, in this group and uh, many of them she had they had their own animal code names so they didn't know each other's real names but they knew each other as tiger spaniel hedgehog eagle all these incredible you know, such an imaginative way of, of, of communicating. And the Gestapo gave them the nickname Noah's Ark because of these animal code names. And hers was Hedgehog. So you'll see her in the Umbrella Mouse in this form with some of her closest allies. So there's also Eagle. Um, and I just had this sort of vision of, because uh, I loved Animals of Farthing Wood and, and Watership Down and War Horse and things when I was growing up. And I just thought, God, this is perfect. This is just the right thing. And I think what, what I think is so enticing about that is that, I mean, especially her own as Hedgehog, because she was this very attractive, she was a young mother of two children that she had to put into hiding. And she even gave birth to her third child when she was on the run from the Gestapo during this period. But the Hedgehog was such a brilliant code name for her because she looked so unassuming. But when you see a Hedgehog, you know, they're sweet, they're, 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 they're not very threatening, but they can be incredibly stubborn when they're in a ball. And that's why she chose that code name. And so when I go into schools and, and bring in my teddy bear of a hedgehog, you know, kids really picture her and it, they love it. And it's, it's so cool to be able to go in and tell them about these incredibly brave human beings who sacrifice so much for your freedom and mine. Um, and I just hope that they might remember her and want to learn a bit more about the resistance in general, because they were such a riveting brave group of people there's another resistor in the umbrella mouse called Han Scholl who's actually a German resistor who um, we don't hear about as much in this country than you do in Germany but he resisted um, the Nazis in Munich with some friends from university and him and his sister he and his sister Sophie sadly um, were executed for doing so um, but it was just and then in umbrella mouse and the rescue I had this opportunity also to, to bring in other resistors outside of Noah's Ark um, so you'll meet First of all, there's Nancy Wake, who was um, an Australian New Zealander who was very ballsy, could drink most men under the table, and she was parachuted in from the SOE to be amongst thousands of French men of the Marquis. And then there's other, this other incredible hero called Noin Yat Khan, um, who was one of the first women to be sent to France during the Second World War to report back to she was a radio operator, which is incredibly dangerous work. And most radio op operators were captured quite quickly. And she, because she was so elusive and clever, and um, she managed to evade capture for a really long time. Um, so you, you see she, she pops up in the Umbrella Mouse, the rescue as a, as a kingfisher towards the end of the book. 
and um, Nancy Wake had also had a nickname by the Gestapo, which was given to her by the Gestapo called the White Mouse. So she's a very key character in the journey to Paris um, that you uh, read about in Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue. So I've been really lucky that I've been able to um, have this artistic license of bringing all these real life heroes from the French resistance all together with these real life animal heroes, <laughs> which also helped us in wartime. And I've, I've, I'm glad that the narratives worked because in another way, it could have been completely mad. It's incredible. And uh, as you say, uh, the White Mouse or Nancy um, plays a pivotal role uh, towards the end of Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue, which we won't say too much about at the moment. But I think the time has come for us to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what happens and what drives the narrative in Umbrella Mouse to the Rescue. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so... Sadly, everyone that you meet in the first book doesn't make it all the way to the end of the story. But um, so it opens with a funeral, um, remembering those that have passed away. And they know that they have to get to Paris. They're, they've had information from their headquarters in London, um, which is very loosely based on MI6, which is who um, MI6 and the SOE, which um, Noah's Ark communicated with in real life. And they get a message saying that they have to help the humans liberate Paris and that the war was um, in the Allies' favour um, because after D-Day, everything changed in the Second World War. It was such a pivotal victory for the Allies and they did move very swiftly across France towards Paris. However, in real life and in the Umbrella Mouse, you will hear that the Allies, they were really not intending to go anywhere near Paris. They wanted to bypass the city. However, the civilians of Paris, knowing that the Allies were nearing um, their capital city, they made a huge civilian uprising to weaken the enemy and also to prove to the Allies that they could come. But it was an incredibly tense moment in, in history because nobody knew whether the Allied armies were going to come to their aid. The Warsaw Uprising in Poland was also happening and they didn't get the military aid that they needed and it was a catastrophe in the civilian casualties. And so there was a lot of tension in the air and I have Pip and Noah's Ark, in real life Noah's Ark, they did contribute towards, um, they gave, funnily enough, General Patton information that was very crucial about the liberation of Paris, but um, Madame Foucard wasn't actually there, nor was Nancy Wake in real life, but I have put them all in Paris because the liberation of Paris was kind of the final chapter of the French resistance story in the Second World War because ultimately they did succeed. They did get the Allied armies to come. They did push the Germans out of Paris and they won their city back. And the liberation of Paris as a celebration was just this huge riot. They had had a dreadful five years of occupation. They were running out of food. They'd been living under, you know, terrible sort of anxiety and unpleasantness from the enemy forces and so if you can imagine what it must have been like to have them leave and everyone just went nuts <laughs> and so you get a glimpse of that in the umbrella master the rescue too so it's it's it is there's a lot of kind of build up to that climactic point and then there are some consequences there are some quite nasty villains who don't make the journey to Paris easy and they also also be as a bit of a there's quite a tense climax for Pip and her friends too at the end of the book 
and mm. and you'll find out where the pit makes it to her ancestral home in Italy as well we will do indeed <laughs> uh but before we get there and before we talk a little bit more about those villains who are fantastic it has to be said um it would be good to hear some of the book and i think you've uh, got a reading for us yes so i can read you a little bit from chapter two which is when the book opens like i said it's 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 at a funeral to remember those who they have lost in the previous book um but pip and noah's ark are interrupted by an uninvited guest so they have to decide how that what they're going to do so this is chapter two the intruder Madame Foucard, Pip cried as she raced after her friend. Something's coming! Suddenly, cracking wood echoed in the forest, and Noah's Ark whipped their heads towards the sound and cowered in alarm, spying a black shape tumble through the air and crash into the ground ferns below, just a short distance from where the animals were standing. What was that? A rabbit asked, thumping the ground with his hind leg. Everyone stay completely still, Madame Foucard hushed, prickles bristling all over her body. Slowly, Take cover under whatever you can, she whispered, and do not huddle together in the warren. Spread out. All of our work will be lost if everyone is captured. Thunder boomed as Noah's Ark scurried under the low ferns and thick brambles tangled across the forest floor. We'll investigate, a squirrel said, scaling a nearby tree trunk with another squirrel chasing her from behind. Bounding across the lofty branches, they peered into the undergrowth with flicking tails. It looks like a crow, madame. Is it moving? whispered the hedgehog as loudly as she could. Pip stretched up onto her tiptoes, but she saw only the forest swaying in the wind. We can't be sure, the other squirrel answered, jumping to another branch and peering from a different angle. It's covered by the undergrowth. Rabbits, come with me and Henri, Madame Foucault's eyes blazed. Tread lightly and be careful not to be seen. Wait for me, Pip dashed to them. The three rabbits gazed at the hedgehog with their ears twitching warily upon their heads. Fine, Madame Foucault sighed, knowing there was nothing she could do to stop her. Henri and I will be right behind you. A rabbit offered his front paw for Pip to climb and she darted up his shoulder to sit at the back of his neck. Beside them, Henri the stag dipped his head to the ground and Madame Foucault clumsily clambered up his nose and scaled the length of his face to stand between his ears. Go! Madame Foucault whispered, towering above them from Henri's full height, and be ready to run as fast as you can. The rain arrived and thudded through the forest as the rabbits crept forward, brushing the undergrowth away with their noses and padding softly on their long, powerful legs. The fallen bird's stark black shape inched into view, lying lifelessly on its stomach with its head flopped on one wing, splayed out on a bed of battered ferns. Is it dead? Pip asked, staring at the blackbird's nearly closed eyes, gleaming with slithers of gold. Shh, Madame Foucault hushed as the stag stepped quietly beside them. The three rabbits edged closer, their paws poised to race away. It's a little small for a crow, Henri whispered, nudging the bird with his nose. He grimaced as its acrid smell rushed up his nostrils. Whatever it is, the hedgehog said, gazing into the treetops. We can't stay in the open like this for much longer. It could be a trap. The animals looked into the forest with their hackles rising. The rest of Noah's Ark had vanished into the thick undergrowth and Pip swallowed, wondering what else could be watching them from hiding places they did not know of. We can't just leave it here, Pip said, nerves jangling as she slid from the rabbit's back to the forest floor and approached the bird. 
It looked harmless, as if it were just sleeping with its beak open, and Pip's ears pricked, waiting to hear a snore. If it's in trouble, we should do something. It's dead, one of the rabbits said, prodding its limp wing with its paw. There's nothing we can do. Come, Madame Fourcard said. This soul is beyond our help. Wait, Pip said, staring at its thin, bony chest, willing for it to rise and fall. Its tattered feathers hung from its fragile body, and her stomach clenched, catching its sour stench in her nose. As she stared at its eyes for a flicker of life, thunder clapped above the trees and the rain fell heavier through the forest. I'm sorry, she said, gently stroking the bird's listless head. I hope you didn't suffer too much. Don't touch it! Madame Fourcard snapped, quills dripping with water. It might be diseased. Pip snapped her paw away, a strange black dust clinging to her palm. A plump raindrop landed on the bird and trickled down its neck, exposing a trail of shimmering green and purple feathers. Let it rest in peace, the hedgehog said firmly. It could have been sent to draw us away from our hideout. This, it's time to return to the warren now. It was then that the black bird's eyes snapped open, burning bright amber, and Pip and the others stumbled backwards in fright, watching its haggard body heave. That's all I can read before there's a huge spoiler. <laughs> yes, there's a, a big surprise uh, coming in the rest of that chapter, and we'll leave people to find it out. So it is a classic animal adventure. I think that one of the challenges, perhaps, of writing an animal story is that you're writing a character that is both animal and human. Um, and you have to, in some way, capture the characteristics of the animal, but leave space for individual characteristics as well. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your choice of animals and whether they presented any interesting challenges to you in the writing. I was one of those children who just adored animals. I, was, I used to go and kind of, you know a semi-dead bird I would try and bring back to life when I was growing up. And I, so I really felt very connected to them from a very young age. So when I was writing from their perspective, I found it quite easy because I, I just loved imagining being one, number one. Um, and, um, and then choosing all these other animals. And, and again, with all the Noah's Ark animals, which were the original sort of inspiration behind the anthropomorphism, um, and Madame Foucault chose these animal code names based on these human beings own characteristics so Leon who you meet in the umbrella mouse was based on her actually her lover in real life Leon Fay who she ended up having this third baby with that she gave birth to um, when she was on the run from the Gestapo and he was in the air force so him being a bird made sense and he was he was so brave and and quite fierce and so an eagle was uh, was a perfect code name for him and you'll see him being like that in the umbrella mouse he is quite fierce but he's also very loyal and pip is very frightened of him at first but then grows to really care for him um throughout the story and i chose pip actually in particular mostly because of her size because i remember that feeling so much of being a child and the grown-ups are always in control of everything and you do feel really small when people are in control of everything but the um the thing that i've learned from all this research is that when these things difficult moments in our lives happen it doesn't matter if you're small we can all do something to make a difference and 
what you find in all this reading and, and what I hope I've captured in the Umbrella Mouse is that no matter what effort you, you can make towards making a change, whether it's big or small, it does something to make a difference. And that's the thing about the Umbrella Mouse, you know, you don't have to be big to be brave. And in a way, having animals, it's because you have that extra suspension of disbelief you can get away with, there's, there's been some argument about uh, animals can give a bit more emotional distance to readers when you're discussing things like war or um, difficult emotional subjects, um, which I appreciate. I think if you was, there were certain moments in The Umbrella Mouse, there's a camp at the end of the first book. And I think that those scenes would have been much more shocking had you had human protagonists um, fighting that kind of evil. So I, I sort of hoped writing a new war story using animals, I might be able to, to do that as well. That's such an interesting point about emotional distance, because I think also conversely, it creates emotional connection because children yeah. feel so connected to animals. Yeah. So it's quite interesting how those two things are working alongside each other. I did have another question about that, actually, because uh, for the most part, your animals inhabit a world that is populated exclusively by animals, although the reader is aware of this human drama that's playing alongside. But there are a few instances where the animal and the human worlds collide. And I wondered whether writing those scenes um, required you to adjust your writing in any way. Yeah, I think it, it, yes, it did. I mean, those scenes I was really inspired by because I loved the borrowers and also the rescuers, those books, which, which I think informed, informed all of those scenes. But I worried a bit about the juxtaposition of both of them because obviously it, it's, it might be slightly jarring when you're reading them. But then in other books, you, you have a sort of encounter uh, with, with humans in some of these anthropomorphic books. I can sort of certainly worship down. I mean, they have words for car, a, a hulu and things like that, which I decided not to do um, just because I felt I always had this kind of fantasy, I suppose, when I was little. And even now that you could have a little mouse watching you from the corner of your shop and be curious about the human world. I mean, I suppose goddess, I've just suddenly had a thought. It's a bit like kind of Ariel in The Little Mermaid where you've got the, you've got the, mer, the mer world and you've got the human world and how they collide as well. Um, but it's great fun because you have this complete kind of riot in your imagination. And as long as your publisher doesn't think you've completely gone round the bend, <laughs> you can write it into a story. I'd like to pick up on some of the, obviously the war is a jeopardy in itself, but some of the other... Um, tensions that are created uh, in the book first of all by your villains the shrikes that was an inspired choice of villain because these are real birds aren't they yeah they are real birds so there was in the french resistance there was this terrible i mean really barbaric and i can talk about him here because your listeners are more grown up but there was this um a man called klaus barbie and he was um, part of the purge of the French resistance because once, once D-Day happened, there was this huge search for anyone who had helped the Allies win on the Normandy landings. And um, so it, it was really appalling, um, the treatment that happened. And Klaus Barbie was involved in that. But his nickname was the Butcher of Lyon. And um, I obviously didn't want to bring him into a children's book because he was too savage, but I just felt like the butcher was so interesting. And then I just thought, thought butcher bird and I put in butcher bird. And then suddenly I found out about the great gray shrike. They are predatory birds, um, which are like little 
sort of hawks. They've got these hooked beaks, but they don't have the talons. So their vicious things may impale little rodents and lizards on thorns. Um, and, as I, and they've got these black masks around their eyes, a bit like kind of bandits. And so often when I'm writing, I have this kind of twinge in my gut that says, that's it, do it. That's what you've got to do. And I find when I'm researching, I often find if I haven't got enough twinges, it's because I haven't researched enough. And so the butcher birds were, thanks to the historical research, mostly because of Klaus Barbie and the Butcher, butcher of Lyon. And, um, and I, he was so predatory and frightening that I wanted the butcher birds to kind of capture a bit of that. Lovely to hear how those things kind of arise all not really serendipitous because you are searching for something but that's not necessarily what you were expecting to find and it crops up and offers itself to you yeah um, to be used in your writing and I think we've just got time to talk about one other thing which was a favorite scene of mine in the book and that's your uh, journey into the catacombs which is a sort of GCHQ isn't it uh, yes. down there um, and I just wondered had you been to the catacombs I mean what a fascinating place that is oh it's amazing yes I have so I was really lucky that um, a friend of my parents had a flat in Paris and she let me stay in her flat in Paris for a week to research and I went to the catacombs and I was really because I'd, I'd always been slightly curious about about them anyway my um my family we always used to go on these um a very kind of cultural holidays and we'd be, we'd be dragged to various bits pieces and I always quite liked the macabre so when I um did this tour of the catacombs I was just like this is perfect because it's you know under it's so secretive it's this sort of secret labyrinth underneath Paris and the French resistance actually didn't use it um i couldn't find any evidence but the leader of the paris uprising uh, colonel roll did have his he headquarters um just next door in a bunker uh, very close to the catacombs and he used um bicycles to generate electricity as well so you'll, you'll see an umbrella mask to the, to the rescue there is a secret chamber of animal resistance characters which use bicycle generators and um, are very close by to colonel roll's um own hideout and um and it just really captured my imagination anna it's been a real pleasure talking to you today and for giving us so such a rich background um uh, into your stories thoroughly enjoyed reading them and i know that our listeners teachers uh, enjoy reading them to their classes too so thank you for joining us today in the reading corner oh well thank you so much for having me it was it was a, such a pleasure to talk to you and kind of you know chew your ear off about it all <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to in the reading corner with just imagine if you have enjoyed this podcast you can find many more on the podcast section of our website justimagine.co.uk plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.